As you move about or are conveyed through myriad city spaces, whether by foot, cycling, wheelchair, bus, car, or using a technology like the escalator you just heard, you will probably recognize the regularity and intensity with which you are being exposed to a whole plethora of brands. Perhaps most notable will be all manner of advertising display. Ads plastered across roadside billboards and building walls, integrated into street furniture, consuming an entire section of a metro station, on or even entirely covering a bus or a tram, or spotted on private motor vehicles with no other apparent purpose but pulling around a hoarding boasting ad display. These displays may often be static, vinyl prints, but increasingly come to us via digital screens showing still and moving images, possibly synchronized in time with your movement through a location. Brands, however, appear in the city not only in advertising. Urban environments are increasingly understood as key venues of brand building and brand management. These emerging techniques are often highly multisensory, involving the more general construction of brands through a combination of visuality, tactility, taste, and smell. These new branding techniques are being applied to everything from large-scale urban events, to architectural design, to retail shops, to ordinary consumer objects. This raises questions about the highly commoditized nature of the cities we live in, not to mention how we might respond politically. Sure, public authorities might ban outdoor ads or seek to better regulate them. Artists and activists might creatively and critically intervene in their public display, often borrowing approaches from the new street art we discussed in the last episode. But branded urbanism runs deep, into the very fine grain of our existence, demanding we ask quite fundamental questions about the relationships between images, affects, consumer objects, and urban environments. The Mediated City is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we rethink media through the city, and the city through media. We will approach the media-urban nexus both old and new, analog and digital, and most of the time, we'll avoid these kinds of categories altogether. Some of you listeners will be students on my module, Media Digitalization in the City, in which we'll discuss and work on some of these themes in more detail. In this episode, the seventh in our series, we explore different dimensions of what we will call urban brandscapes, the relationships of brands and branding with the urban landscape. The key idea I want to get across is this. So-called out-of-home advertising is a conspicuously problematic aspect of urban brandscapes. But fully appreciating the mediated relationships of commodities in the city means widening our attention to how urban environments more generally are infused with branded character, feel, and atmosphere. While our intention here is to work towards a broader conception of urban brandscapes, it might make sense to start with a conspicuous case. Advertising displays in urban public space, what in the industry are termed out-of-home or OOH advertising. Not only is this example helpful in its specificity, but it also connects nicely with some of the themes of earlier episodes. 
From our first episode onward, we've been often citing different ways that urban surfaces have been put to communicative or mediated uses. And that has often hinted at the long history of what we call today out-of-home advertising. You might recall, for example, our discussion of David Hankin's 1998 book, City Reading, in which he examines 19th century New York as a word city filled with all manner of printed materials, hoardings, signs, and writing spread throughout the urban built environment. This long history has today crystallized into a specialized sector of out of home media companies devoted to defining, tracking, and mapping market subjects as they pass through public spaces. The cultural sociologist Anne Cronin has undertaken some of the most detailed ethnographic research on out-of-home advertising as an industry, culminating in her 2010 book, Advertising, Commercial Spaces, and the Urban. For Cronin, out-of-home media companies basically operate as space brokers. They own and classify sites for things such as billboards or posters, according to various criteria. They value those sites. And then, indirectly, typically through advertising agencies, they sell those spaces for a stretch of time to advertising clients. In some ways, out-of-home media companies are like media owners selling advertising space adjacent to content in publications or on websites. The difference is that they sell advertising space adjacent to various urban places. While the market share of -of out-of-home advertising is relatively small, In 2006, Cronin noted, for example, that it accounted for only 9% of UK ad revenue. The sector is growing, and many advertising buyers believe that these ads have a disproportionate commercial impact, since they are placed literally in your path. They are the ads you can't turn off. Much of this commercial impact is because out-of-home advertising is inserted into minor elements of banal urban infrastructure, such as bus shelters. But you have probably also witnessed some very large-scale and even monumental examples. In 2006, those leaving Munich's International Airport by car drove under an enormous billboard cutout of Bayern Munich goalkeeper Oliver Kahn, making a save across the roadway. You really can't ignore an ad when you are literally scoring with your vehicle. Or, during Zurafest in Switzerland, a pedestrian crossing was partially painted over with a McDonald's container, creating an almost unavoidable recognition by pedestrians that the yellow markings of the crossing had temporarily become fries. Sometimes ad campaigns transcend display and enter into the realm of stunts. In November 2015, for example, drones modeled as people were seen flying at various sites around the River Thames in London. While the meaning of these flying people was inexplicable to first-hand witnesses, The campaign was designed to attract media attention, which later revealed mobile operator GIFGAF as the commercial sponsor of the campaign. It is interesting to look into the market research of -of out-of-home media companies such as Clear Channel, JC Deco, Outfront Media, which was formerly CBS Outdoor Media, and Global, which now owns Exterion Media. If you dig around their websites, you will find analyses which, in particular and peculiar ways, resonate with the themes we've been discussing in this podcast. Out-of-home media owners' market research focuses less on demographic classifications and more on mode. They are interested in how, and for how long, people encounter the advertising spaces or surfaces that out-of-home media owners have for sale. As Cronin puts it, they create, quote, taxonomies of people and space. End quote. In so doing, these companies don't neutrally research locations or benignly place ads in existing paths and contexts. 
Instead, the work they do alters the visual legibility of the city, and hence the shape and rhythms of its spaces. As Cronin argues in a 2008 article in the journal Environment and Planning A, out-of-home media owners don't just use, but also perform the city as a medium, rendering it into a kind of calculative space. Such forms of advertising in public spaces have important implications for thinking about the urban experience more generally, beyond the intentional practices and knowledge generated by out-of-home media companies. As Cronin puts it in an earlier theoretical piece in the journal Society and Space, out-of-home advertising is a form aligning, quote, the travel and work rhythms of the city and the innovation and promotion rhythms of the commodity, end quote. A road diverges in the desert. Lexus. The road you're on, John Anderton, is the one less traveled. You're hearing a scene from the 2002 Steven Spielberg film Minority Report, in which Tom Cruise's character, John Anderton, walks through a corridor filled with moving image three-dimensional display ads. As he glances around, his eyes are repeatedly scanned by sensors, which register his identity and in turn actuates customized auditory calls to action in relation to various brands and products. While we may not have yet arrived at this future of retinal recognition-driven public advertising, we are closer than you may think. Take a listen to a section of this 2014 video from Root, a company providing audience estimates for the out-of-home advertising industry in Great Britain. We know everything about the consumer as they move about their world, how they behave, who they are, and exactly what they see. We've invested £19 million in creating this pioneering new research, which for the first time covers every frame in Great Britain, including tube, rail, roadside, buses, retail and airports. We begin by following and plotting the movements of people all over Great Britain. In the largest GPS study of its kind, we've collected tracking data from 30,000 people. Combining this with detailed traffic patterns and street networks, we build up a clear and precise picture of the population's movements. Our GPS tracking is recorded passively without any input from the carrier, producing an authentic picture of travel behavior. With every single frame mapped in precise detail at ground level, we build an accurate calculation of the numbers of people moving past any media site. But this isn't all. Pioneering eye-tracking studies allow us to determine who will make eye contact with any given advertising frame. These studies also take into account if the frame is digital, scrolling or static. And we break the data down even further into specific demographic detail, painting the clearest possible picture of exactly who makes up the audience for every frame. In the video, Root is promoting how Through large-scale research using various digital tracking technologies, out-of-home media installations and campaigns can be ever more fine-tuned in line with various modeled site-specific audiences. But we may be close to Minority Report's visions in ways other than audience research, too. The website and promotional materials of every OOH media company today will cite DOOH, or Digital Out-of-Home. Though still more ambition than reality, and something of a catch-all term, DOOH imagines an increasingly digitalized public advertising. 
more dynamic kinds of digital out-of-home displays targeted at individuals in proximity or changing depending on the time of day or even the weather conditions. Or ad spaces sold in real-time auctions to buyers with new content displayed across a region or even a whole nation in mere minutes. Looking ahead to our forthcoming episodes on network location, platform urbanism, and sentient cities, we can already see emerging an increasingly complex fusion between the personalization and tracking techniques of social media and the time-space milieus of -of out-of-home advertising. So far, we have been describing out-of-home advertising as an urban medium, with less regard for the advertising displayed or communicated. Our emphasis up until now has been on context, but of course, content matters too. But how? A useful referent to unpack this relationship between context and content is Emma Arnold's 2021 article in the journal City on advertising in Norwegian urban public spaces. Based on analyzing photographs taken during psychogeographic walks, getting intentionally lost in the city, Arnold focuses on outdoor ads portraying women. Not just those presenting idealized bodies, but images showing women in various sexually suggestive poses or states of undress. Arnold is interested in how such ads help produce a sexualized urban space. As she notes, feminist urban researchers have long observed how, Even though physical infrastructures are obviously important for how we navigate urban spaces, even more significant are invisible barriers, such as fear. Fear, says Arnold, can be seen as an affect, a feeling or sensation of experience which interacts with more particular emotions such as apprehension. For Arnold, affect is an important concept for understanding how sexualized outdoor advertising produces space. It also had methodological implications for her research, since it mediated what routes and paths she tacitly felt she could take safely during her psychogeographic wanderings. The sexualized and gendered dimensions of outdoor advertising have been a topic of numerous controversies in Norway. Arnold discusses examples such as in the small city of Trondheim, where bikini ads were banned on the rationale that they portrayed an unnaturally thin body image, or debates in Oslo about whether H&M advertisements featuring the model Anna Nicole Smith raised safety concerns because they might distract driving men. And again in Oslo, a controversial campaign for a dating website that played with pornography website aesthetics while appropriating post-feminist notions of women as active agents in their objectification. In all of these examples, Arnold notes, the specifically public spatiality of the advertising is an issue, but mostly in the background. More generally, the terms of the debate center on content rather than context. For Arnold, it is crucial to put context into the foreground when analyzing the content of such images. Sexualized images, she argues, become mercurial in public space, meaning they change in mood. While the ad itself may remain an unchanging vinyl print, quote, the structure within which it is displayed reacts with the movement of light, people, objects, weather, and the structures that contain these images contribute to and enhance the affective possibilities of otherwise fixed images. End quote. So, to put it simply, where sexualized outdoor ads are placed matters for the affects and emotions they produce. Beyond spatiality, an even more important dimension for Arnold is time. 
Here we might recall how in episode one, we cited Ian Borden's account of witnessing McDonald's ads appear and disappear on the fronts of tube escalator steps. As you remarked, these sorts of images are, quote, temporal as well as spatial insertions, for the exact moment of intrusion is precisely judged in time as well as space, invading the psychology of the traveler at the very moment of decision-making, end quote. In Arnold's analysis, sexualized advertising also undergoes a temporal shift in meaning, at night. For one, the urban night is generally considered a time of greater insecurity, particularly for women, notably because it is dark. And yet, at night, light produces certain atmospheres and affects in its contrast with the dark. This is clear from Arnold's collection of photographs. At night, you can see the sexualized ads becoming beacon-like projections of electric light, shining far brighter than the ambient light emanating from street lamps or building windows. Now, it would be entirely possible, Arnold notes, for a post-feminist or queer counter-reading to conceive of some of the sexualized images in question as empowering. In other words, there are intersectional questions to consider here, which might show how such images are not necessarily only legible as a means of titillating heterosexual men. Arnold seems to be suggesting, however, that that kind of reading is more plausible if we imagine it being undertaken in some kind of secure setting, such as a library or in a private home. The possibility for this kind of counter-reading is at least somewhat overridden when these images are encountered via the more hegemonic masculinity of outdoor urban public space, in particular during the nighttime. Arnold is clearly saying that the content of the sexualized advertising she photographed is problematic. But above all, it is the fusion of content and context. In their sheer publicity and notable temporal shifts at night, these ads don't just portray women sexually. They produce sexualized and even hypersexualized urban space. We, we can reconfigure the logos that confront us. We have that power. It's culture jamming culture. Culture, culture, culture jamming culture. We have that power. Culture, culture, culture jamming. We love billboards. A big part of our mission has been to encourage people to go ahead and use these canvases. One notable political response to outdoor or out-of-home advertising is so-called culture jamming, the modification of objects or images of consumer culture, such as brands or ads, to creatively highlight their questionable assumptions. At least historically, this was the main USP of Adbusters magazine's well-known spoof ads. Another response, deployed by the likes of Les Dubolonaires, the debunkers in France, or the New York Street Advertising Takeover, is to reject even working with and potentially legitimating advertising's cultural codes, and instead to just engage in damaging, defacing, or seeking to remove or at least strictly regulate outdoor advertising. Banning outdoor advertising isn't just an endeavor of the political left. In 2007, Sao Paulo, one of the world's largest cities, became one of the first in the capitalist world to ban virtually all billboards, while introducing new regulations designed to limit the size of signage. And this wasn't some kind of anti-capitalist maneuver. Conservative Mayor Gilberto Kassab's clean city law was premised on reducing what he called visual pollution. As Kurt Iveson notes in a 2011 article in the journal Antipode, Cases like that in Sao Paulo highlight a long historical tendency to clamp down on advertising, not because it promotes runaway consumption or 
because it commits some sort of symbolic violence upon those for whom the products are out of reach, but rather in the interests of civic order. Many campaigns against outdoor advertising have been directed at its most clutter-ridden manifestations and are couched in strong elitist overtones about protecting populations, largely seen as passive audiences from a decivilizing and chaotic public realm. Iveson also points out that Sao Paulo Mayor Kassab's clean city law was paired with a new city contract for the provision of street furniture. This shows, he says, how public authorities are often in on the game, entering into public-private partnership deals with the global out-of-home media companies we mentioned earlier. It essentially works like this. Out-of-home media companies agree to provide attractive street furniture, things like refuse bins, bus shelters, street signs, information maps, and so on, And in return, they retain exclusive rights to sell, display, advertising integrated into that same street furniture. For many public authorities, it's a deal that not only reduces spending from municipal revenues, but cleans up the public realm, something that's also valuable to out-of-home media companies who have an interest in monopolizing attention in the visual landscape. See this, like, massive vinyl billboard for Hennessy up here, right? There's a code that says there can't be a billboard within 100 feet of a park over a half an acre. We called it in on May 5th of 2008, and on October 3rd, a building inspector came and determined that it's illegal. This company is basically breaking the law every month and getting away with it. Outdoor advertising companies and marketers are outside influences. They don't care about you. They don't care about your neighborhood. They care about your eyeballs. See these trees right here? Somebody cut these trees to allow visibility to the billboard. It's so bright, I almost hit some pedestrians. The likelihood of that driver getting into a crash goes up by double. And the billboard industry simply says, we don't care. When you go out on a street and look and see nothing but a big clutter of signs, What else is that other than visual pollution? You are hearing some sections of the trailer for This Space Available, a now somewhat hard-to-access 2011 film which provides a quite critical account of the outdoor advertising industry around the world. Many of those interviewed in the film are public space activists, but what's notable is how the film also lines up a series of figures from the advertising industry who bemoan outdoor advertising as visual pollution, as tending towards the excessive and often put up without permission. In short, one strong theme of this space available is to suggest out-of-home media owners are the baddies of advertising. The fact that this film features internal debates from within the field of advertising is partly explained by the people behind it. Its executive producer was Mark Gobey, a renowned advertising guru who passed away in 2014. Gobey is associated with the notion of emotional branding, which was both the name of his consultancy and the title of his best-selling book, translated into 17 languages. The book Emotional Branding is directed at readers in the advertising industry and advocates a new philosophy of brands. It argues advertising should transcend doggedly trying to sell products, which, it posits, just make people hate brands. Instead, the field should focus on building deep, emotional, and multi-sensory connections with consumers. Another relevant detail of the film is that it is directed by Gwenelle Gobey, daughter of Mark Gobey, an illustrator and animator who, among other projects, has worked with prominent American street artist Shepard Ferry, reminding us again about the growing symbiosis we discussed in our last episode between street art and the creative industries. 
As Liz Moore details in her 2007 book, The Rise of Brands, shifts in the field of advertising towards brand building and brand management have been underway for some time. Thinking in terms of brands draws our attention to a much wider range of commodified phenomena helping shape urban life. Brands, after all, are not just displayed to us in ads. They can encompass everything from architecture, to retail shops, to events, to consumer objects such as clothing. Brands and branding also tend to give us a far more multi-sensory and less ocular-centric way of thinking about commodification in the city. This is well documented in Van Troy Tran's 2006 article in the Journal of Consumer Culture, a case study of the 2010 World Expo in Shanghai. Tran shows how the event in Shanghai was not only, like all modern-day expos, quote, an international parade of branding, end quote. In the sweltering hot temperatures of the Shanghai summer, it also was an environment in which different drink brands, each of whom had exclusive rights to sell their product, also used the occasion to present their immaterial value as brands in conjunction with what Tran terms the carnal ecology of quenching thirst. Tran considers three drink brands prominently showcased at the expo. First was Litri, one of China's largest purified water brands. Its numerous water-dispensing outlets were a platform to connect to various narratives as well, including its technologies as leading in the development of global standards for water purification, the way dispensing technologies enable purified water to be distributed with a lower carbon footprint, and, interestingly, narratives around civil drinking behavior, such as queuing and the maintenance of hygienic standards at filling stations. Tran's second example is Yili, a Chinese dairy company that was implicated in the tainted milk scandal associated with the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Not only did Yili recover their image via Expo, they connected their brand with ideals of milk as a universal currency associated with maternity, kin, and the family, while sponsoring services only loosely related to its product, such as a children's entertainment garden and 40 childcare centers around the Expo site. Finally, Tran discusses Coca-Cola's prominent place at Expo, seen not only in the countless stands selling the beverage, but in a pavilion celebrating the global drink brand itself, modeled on displays already honed at the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta, the company's worldwide headquarters. These connections Tran analyzes between drink brands and the spatial setting of Expo might seem like a special case. Life at Expo is rather unlike mundane urban life, such as commuting, shopping, doing the school run, or getting a haircut. And yet, we might also remember that urban life is not merely defined by mundanity, but by the frequent presence of spectacular events. For example, sporting events like the Olympics or the World Cup, music festivals and concerts, conferences and trade fairs, film festivals and art exhibitions. Events like the World Expo provide us with an interesting insight into a highly curated in-person brandscape, one in which product logistics are often enforced through exclusive brand contracts. But events like the Shanghai World Expo, Tran seems to suggest, don't work in isolation. They are testing grounds for various practices of brand building, increasingly integrated into our everyday lives through approaches such as experiential marketing and transmedia storytelling. The architecture of cities has, over many years, become increasingly and intensively branded. In their well-known book, Learning from Las Vegas, 
Robert Venturi, Denise Scott Brown, and Stephen Isenor argued that Las Vegas in the 1970s engendered an entirely new architectural aesthetic, where signs and symbols were the architecture of the landscape. As they claimed, quote, if you take the signs away, there is no place, end quote. The architecture of Las Vegas today remains a notable brandscape, though in ways transcending neon signage. It's a highly orchestrated, themed, experienced economy. And it's a model we can see playing out to different extents in cities around the world. Another noticeable form of urban brandscapes is, of course, retail environments. A prime example is Apple's flagship urban stores. Students on the module to which this podcast is connected will recall us visiting Apple's store, Regent Street, which opened in 2004 to become one of the most profitable retail stores in London. The store was redeveloped by architecture firm Foster & Partners in 2016, who sought to create a more spacious feel, removing a mezzanine and even the Apple logos from the windows, allowing the morning light to pour in. Materials such as trees, stone, and wood were introduced to generate a, quote, sense of calm, end quote, and somehow a town hall-like, quote, civic generosity, end quote. The new design conformed to a well-developed model deployed by other brands from Godiva to Lego, which Wired Magazine has called Apple-fied retail. Sure, you can buy Apple products at these locations from enthusiastic salespeople called brand ambassadors. But arguably just as important is cultivating a multi-sensory aesthetic that is holistically of the brand, intended to build or reaffirm a more general devotion to Apple through the in-store experience. Now, we can take things even further here and think about consumer objects themselves as part of the urban brandscape. In their 2007 book, Global Culture Industry, The Mediation of Things, Scott Lash and Celia Lurie revisit the Frankfurt School's notion of culture industry. They argue that, after the 1970s, the cultural or creative industries began to evolve beyond just producing representations of things. Increasingly, their work has been about embedding the symbolic into the things themselves. In other words, we've long left behind the days when products were simply manufactured goods and ads represented those goods to potential consumers. Today, not only do things become media, but media become things. For Lash and Lurie, this means that the classic Marxian distinction of material base and symbolic superstructure become rather muddied, since they have collapsed into one another. Think about the objects you see every day in the city. For example, a paper Starbucks cup or the iconic Apple iPhone. These objects in themselves are branded by design. And this is where it gets interesting. When urban spaces are seen as the ultimate intensification of proliferating brands, branding, and brandscapes, from indoor and outdoor environments to circulating consumer objects. That's it for this episode. In our next, we'll be exploring networked location, the increasingly fundamental intersections between the internet and the urban. So, until then... I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to The Mediated City.